And then how about uh, youngest child? Anybody think you might have the youngest child? Cal? Oh, okay. Well, okay. how many, how many, can I, uh, no, never mind. We're going to leave that one alone. How about uh, oldest child? Anybody think you might have the oldest? 19? Anybody beat 19? Okay, so we're right in the sweet spot here, 0 to 19. Um, this talk, I'm sure, is going to overlap a little bit with the things you've already, uh, some of the things you just heard in the Q&A. Um, my job is not so much to get into the technology. I mean, as someone who's probably about old enough to be, you know, Caleb and, and Claire's parents, I'm not going to get into that one too much either. Um, I ain't here for the technological stuff. I'm trying to dig in a little bit to the theological, kind of the, the how you are thinking about your role in these things as a parent. They're going to get into, they've already gotten into some of that, but, and, and they're going to hit the practical, um, how do you handle the technological things. I was learning from, from what I heard in the Q&A as well. But um, let, me, let me introduce the topic this way. Many years ago now, someone that I knew very well, someone I still know very well, shared with me information that this individual's elementary age child had been acted upon sexually by another child of the same age from a different family. The question that came to me was, what should we do? What should the parents of this child do? And I had no idea. Um, what I had going for me was that I was a couple offices away from, from, from Deepak, from someone who knew exactly what to do. And so I want to ask you this question. I want to put it before you and let you grapple with it for just a second. What if that question came to you? What if it were your child who was acted upon sexually by another child? What if it were your child that you found out who had been the initiator of that? What if you've already had a similar crisis or something worse regarding your own child? So my goal for this session is to put some strategies and tools in your hands now. Did everybody get a handout? Anybody not have a handout? Okay, so if I don't get through all of this, which is possible, you'll at least have something in your hands you can refer to. My goal is to put these strategies, these tools in your hands now so that when the time comes, you have something to refer to. But not just that. I'm, I'm not just trying to help you prepare for the moment when it hits, when the crisis arrives. Uh, as I think it was Benjamin Franklin said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? A stitch in time saves nine. I want you, parents, potential parents, I want you to commit to start on this project now. I want to encourage you to assume that the moment will come inevitably when you learn that a child is committing sexual sin. If that doesn't happen, praise God. But parent, you will be the exception if that moment doesn't come into your life. If, you kids, if, you, if your kids leave home and you never found out about any of your children engaging in sexual sin, it is probably not because it never happened. It is probably because you were oblivious if not negligent. So I'm urging you to leave the seminar today and start taking some of these steps immediately. This is not an exhaustive list. Um, I assume that there's going to be some things that leap off the page to you. Why didn't Ben mention this? It's probably not because what comes to your mind is, is not a good idea. It just didn't enter into my head in preparation. So this is certainly not exhaustive. It is not inerrant except for the things that come directly from Scripture. It is drawn from Scripture and experience and conversations with wiser people than I. 
It's, it's dependent upon published resources, some of which are on the back page and some of which, man, I don't even know where it comes from. So these resources may already be on Caleb and Claire's list, but there may be a, uh, some that are not. And theirs will be helpful on many of the practical things that mine, do, mine does not address. And those resources are on the back page. Yes, ma'am, you have a question? I can get one for you, yes. So if Nathan, Nathan and I can get in contact, and I will send it to Nathan, who can then get it to you. How's that? Does that work? Okay. All right, so um, I told you, I don't want you to wait until the moment comes to get started. So I'm going to begin with, with st- seven steps that you need to take, that you need to take right now. So right now, before the crisis arrives, start praying. Of all the other 25 things on this list, none of them will bear any fruit unless God works mercifully and powerfully in your family. So, so start praying now. Number two, commit now to love your child no matter what you find out about your child. Love isn't mere affection. It's not the feelings that we have of, 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 of gratefulness and encouragement from your child. Love is also not affirmation. Love does not, contrary to what our culture tells us, love does not mean that whatever your child wants to do, you affirm your child in that direction. Love means that you, um, love means that you affirm their commitment to follow after God and submit to Him, and your commitment to go to war against anything that would be in rebellion against Him. You're seeking their eternal good, not their immediate gratification. So if our love as parents is, is patterned after, after God's love for us, right? We can make that argument from Scripture. Our love as parents is patterned after God's love for us. Then it is not conditional to our children's performance. Our love for our children must not be conditioned upon their performance, upon their performance towards us. I have a pastor friend, Bob Johnson, pastor in the Detroit, Michigan area. Um, I remember him saying several years ago, before we had kids, so it's been at least 12 years ago now, I remember hearing him say this, and by God's grace, we practice this with our kids just about every night. Before our kids go to bed, we pray with them, and I remind them, boys and daughter, mommy and daddy love you. We will always love you, and there is nothing you could ever do that will ever stop us from loving you. Every now and then, I forget, and those kids remind me, dad, what's going on here? Did you stop loving us, right? (laughs) If I say the words wrong, they correct my words. And then they make fun of me every now and then for saying it again and again and again, too. And you know what? I'm okay with being made fun of my children for reaffirming my love to them. Your commitment to love them, your stated commitment to love them that they, that they then feel, that will foster trust and openness. It will help sustain your relationship with them through their likely sin and the inevitable con, con, uh, conflict that will arise. And it will also establish a foundation for you to be able to rebuke them and for them to be able to receive that rebuke knowing that you love them. Now, that one, number two, is probably the longest one, so don't be afraid you're going to be here. If we're going to spend five minutes on each one, no, we're going to move pretty quickly now, all right? And we, if I have a few minutes left at the end, we'll take some questions. Number three, help your kids feel safe talking to you. Let them know that it is okay for them to, to talk with you about things that they saw or things that they may have done. About uh, two weeks ago, one of our children behaved unwisely related to a device and a game that was on it. They don't play a lot of video games, but they had a limited opportunity, and this child abused that opportunity. So I sat him down that night, and I just said, kids, here's, here's the deal. This is the short version of it. There are things on devices that can be dangerous for you. 
So some of you, have, have any of you guys ever seen anything on a device or on a TV that you shouldn't have seen? And one child raises his hand and says, I, yeah, I, I think I did, Dad, once. And I said, well, you want to talk about it? He's like, well, not in front of the little ones. Okay, okay, fine, wise choice. We talked about it a little while later on. And by God's grace, it was not pornography. It was something, it was inappropriate physical contact between a man and a woman of a limited sexual nature. It could have been a lot worse. It was a reminder to me of, of how, I mean, some of the things you're just hearing about in the Q&A. But, but I was glad, as much as I was reminded of my need to be more vigilant, I was glad that my child felt safe talking with me about what he'd seen. Number four, and this, may, this is one of the five most important here, do not underestimate your child's depravity. Okay? I, I, if your child has pre- professed faith and been baptized and joined the church, if your child gives evidence of being a believer, I praise God for that, and I'm not calling that into question, but do not underestimate your child's capacity to sin. Men and women, are we aware of our capacity to sin? Do we think that our children are less capable? Have you ever been surprised by your own capacity about how deep it was? It is highly unlikely that your child will be the exception. I don't want to say every kid's going to sin sexually. I don't think I can say that, but it is highly unlikely that yours will be the exception. Number five, just for a moment, reflect on when, how, and why you made mistakes. You, maybe I should say, committed sins sexually in your own life, in your childhood, in your teenage years, your college years. And I know for myself, this is maybe to a lesser degree true for those of you who are younger than me. For me, 25, 30, 35 years ago, there was a whole lot less access then than there is now, as Caleb and Claire have talked about. So, ask yourself this. What did your parents not know about you? And knowing what you know now, what would you have told your parents to do? So reflect on when, how, and why you made mistakes. Number six, have, or at least plan to have, the conversations that you dread. Now, I'm not here to tell you exactly when you ought to go into what detail about the nature of marriage and sex with your kids. Um, Is it possible to go into too much detail too soon, too much detail with children when they're too young? Yes, it's possible. I believe it's possible. But I'd simply counter that argument or qualify with this, I have known far more parents who said they waited too long than parents who said that they started too soon and went into too much detail too soon. So be aware of that tendency. And then number seven, teach a biblical perspective on sexuality. Within God's design, it is a good thing. I didn't, I'm not going to take the time to go to the scriptures here. I think these are pretty familiar. Genesis 2 uh, is God's design for the one flesh relationship within marriage. And this is good. This is part of God's plan for filling the earth with his glory, filling the earth with, with his image bearers. Proverbs 5 contains both warnings, but also affirmation of the sexual relationship within marriage. And then 1 Corinthians 7, I just preached. By God's grace, I've been in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7 leading up to this. And 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5 was last Sunday. Do not deprive one another except it be for a time as a tool to go to war against Satan. I mean, the sermon I preached was basically stomp on Satan by engaging in the physical relationship as, as husband and wife. It is a good thing. So teach your children from as early 
an age as you find appropriate to understand God's good design. In fact, I stood in front of my children last Sunday and preached that sermon. I didn't go into as much detail as, you know, probably uh, as... uh, I didn't go into as much detail as I would at at an older age for them. But I think they needed to hear it, even at ages eight and five. Now, when the time comes, when the time comes that a child sins, don't be surprised. Do not be, do not be surprised. This is grounded in what you understand about depravity. One of the issues that will arise when, you're, when your child is discovered to be in sexual sin, one of the problems will be your expectations. Okay? You had an expectation. You thought everything was fine. You didn't think your child had been exposed to things that they'd been exposed to. Just think about your own marriages. All right? How many times... Have you had conflict in your marriages, unrelated to sexuality, how many times have you had conflict in your, in your marriage related to expectations? One spouse had one set of expectations, the other spouse had another. And when those expectations are mismatched, what happens? Conflict, further breakdown, all right? Anger. Um, this can also infect our relationship with our children, that when we have expectations that things are fine and we find out they're not, it throws us off, it makes us angry and causes us to respond to their sin in a fleshly fashion ourselves. I am not telling you that it will be as bad for your child as you can imagine. I simply don't want any of us to assume, this is myself included, I don't want any of us to assume that there is any sin that our children or you and I are incapable of committing. So don't be surprised. Number nine, even if you are surprised, don't act surprised. Okay? (laughs) Shock or disgust or anger expressed towards your child can do lasting damage to your relationship. It can teach them. It can give them the sense that they are some kind of unsavable sinner. As a pastor, I have sat in conversations and heard terms as people confess sin. I have heard terms that I did not know. I did my best to nod my head and keep, keep a straight face and keep on listening. In some cases, I'm still not sure exactly what terms meant. Number 10, don't make dramatic statements that you could later regret. Avoid, take some time to breathe. Avoid the immediate pronouncements about a permanent change in your relationship or immediate declarations of severe punishments. Severe punishments may be very appropriate. New limitations, new rules may be very appropriate, but just take some time to breathe, talk things over with a spouse, maybe get external advice and to pray and to cool down before you make those statements. Number 11, on the other side of things, do not be unconcerned. Don't dismiss it. Don't excuse it. Boys will be boys. No. Sin needs to be dealt with. Loving your child means that you will warn them about the consequences of sin and point them to hope in Christ. More on that in a moment. Number 12, no matter what your child tells you when he or she is caught, don't assume it's the first sin. You will hear this. There's a good chance you'll hear this. This is the first time I've ever done this and you caught me. That is almost certainly a lie. I draw this from just years of pastoral experience. If a child is sinning sexually, why wouldn't she lie to you too? If she's deeply hardened in sexual sin, 
she's probably also been lying to you for years to, to, to guard, to hide that sexual sin, to keep it buried. It is far more likely, again, I can't speak with absolute certainty. I'm trying to help you set your expectations. It is far more likely that the sexual sin is already habitual, or maybe this is just one more escalated step. Maybe it's true that he's never done that before, but he's done 19 things that led to that step 20 before, many, many times. Most adults will claim this, too, when they're caught in sexual sin. Okay? It's the instinctive response that minimizes the significance and the gravity. Number 13, don't assume that all your first instincts or all your assumptions about the situation are correct. There may be a lot more that you don't know about the influence of other people, about what your child has come to believe is right or wrong, and, and, and there may be even other uh, aspects of this I can't even anticipate. Just don't assume that you know everything. So number 14, gather information, but I would urge you to avoid a, an atmosphere of interrogation, okay? Your instinct's going to be, I'm conducting a full, thorough FBI, maybe that's not a good analogy, a full, thorough just investigation immediately, and we're going to get to the bottom of this, the facts, okay? And you want it all right now, and so you're going to go in with your prosecuting attorney uh, hat on and, get, and, and try to get everything, that you want, that everything you want to know. Rather than that, and this is, this is probably the point where I'm at my, I want to be, take the lightest touch in what I'm saying today, my suggestion on, your, on, on where to start would be ask a few questions, Okay? Gather a little more information. Reaffirm your love. Tell him you need to take some time to process what you've learned and to pray about it and maybe even seek some counsel on it. What you don't want to do, I'm thinking of like a, some kind of Star Trek, Star Wars movie right now here, and I'm, I'm liable to start mixing metaphors, which I know will get me in trouble with people, okay? But I'm thinking of like the space movies, the science fiction movies where there's some kind of battle happening and, and one of the ships puts their shields up, Right? What you want to avoid doing is, putting, is, is um, causing your children's shields to turn on so that it shuts down conversations, so that it builds walls between you and him or her. Now, try not to engage those defenses. Take some time. It might be a few minutes. It might be a few hours, days. You might need to take, take some time to get some, some outside insight like I did with Deepak a number of years ago before I started running my mouth off. Um, gather that information and then return to the conversation later. Now, now you may lose, know that you may lose some access. Your, your, your child may have figured out a way to, to cover his or her tracks, to come up with some sort of plausible story by that point. So this is where I'm wanting to take the lightest touch on number 14. This, this one will be open to the specifics of the, of the individual circumstance. Number 15. Do your best to, dis to discern repentance over days, even weeks. Okay, so your child may say right away, I'm so sorry, I'll never do this again, please forgive me. Trying to mitigate the situation, minimize your response to it. Limit the punishment that's coming, okay? What you want to try to do is pay close attention to see if there are... John the Baptist preached, bring forth therefore, what? Fruits in keeping with repentance. You want to see just not, not just the words but the fruit of a heart that is broken over sin and that wants to be right with God. Um, in, in adult situations, I have not seen this, I can't say that I've seen it as much in individual circumstances, 
but over weeks, months, in adult situations related to church discipline where someone has been in sin and it's come to light, um, you will, you'll see very early on a, a response of pride or a response of humility, and you kind of get a sense of where it may be going. But in many cases, that sense of humility that you find early on breaks down after a few weeks or after a few months, after privileges and rights aren't restored as quickly as the child wants them to be. Certainly that happens with adults. You know where that happens a lot? I see it is with pastors who've fallen into moral failure, who want to be restored to pastoral ministry in a few weeks or months or after a year or whatever. And when the church, the leadership of the church isn't ready for that, then you see, you know, kind of the dragon come out, the anger and fine, I'm going to go, I'm going to go plant my own church. I'm going to take people away. That's when you see whether there's a true heart of repentance or not. So try to discern, discern repentance in your child's life and know that it will emerge more clearly over days and weeks and months than in minutes or hours. And just know that the more, the more deep the sin has been, both in time and in level, the more hardened your child's deceit is likely to be. What I, what I mean by that is, the more deeply your child has sinned, and, and, and for a longer period of time, the better they will be at, 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 at knowing how to hide an unrepentant heart from you. Number 16, don't assume that your child is a Christian. So maybe your child made a profession of faith at a young age, was baptized, joined the church. Um, I would urge you to, to get your hands on a book called my, uh, by, by Mike McKinley called Am I Really a Christian? The folks in our church have used this book to great fruit in their relationships with family members. So a number of adults, uh, older adults with adult children in our our church have either read this book and it has guided their conversation with their adult children who professed faith at an early age, or they've handed that book off to their children and say, hey, you know, know, it's a hard book to put in somebody's hands that says, am I really a Christian? It's kind of accusatory, but, but given the options of not giving them a a sound biblical resource to think through and just letting them continue in thinking they're a Christian when they're not, I'll take take the the first option. Um, And so I have not used this with with any of my children yet. None of my children have publicly professed faith yet. But I would not hesitate to use that book, at the very least, to guide my thinking about what I see in their lives. That's Mike McKinley, Am I Really a Christian? And it's on the back page in the resources as well. Number 17, well, let me just back up to 16. I made a profession of faith when I was, I think, four or five years old, was baptized within a year or two after that, and, and for years in a Christian school, in a Christian college, had this assurance that had been given to me by people who said, yeah, you prayed a prayer, you really meant it, You're, on that grounds you are a Christian. I had a Sunday school teacher, a dear sweet woman, a Sunday school teacher, I remember telling me when I was a small child, yeah, because I asked a question. Yes, if you deny Jesus, if you make a profession of faith, you pray the prayer, you're baptized and you're a little kid, you deny Jesus later on, you're still saved because of what you did when you were five. That is, brothers and sisters, that is not a biblical picture of conversion, as Mike McKinley helpfully unpacks. So, don't affirm that, don't affirm to your children a a presupposition that they are converted. Again, John the Baptist. Bring forth, therefore, fruits in keeping with repentance. Um, On to 18. Sorry, 17. Make sure that the law and its penalty are clear. Okay, Make sure that your children know from an early age, and this is whether they're sexual sin or not, 
that they are, by nature, Ephesians 2, children of wrath, by nature. But what this means is that you will need to know what Scripture teaches. You will need to know God's law. So, okay, in your heads right now, just take a moment. If your child asked you one of these questions, what would you say? Okay, number one, why is it wrong to have sex outside marriage? Number two, why is pornography wrong? I'm not with another person. Number three, why don't you like my transgender friend? Number four, why can't Emily and her girlfriend come over to our house to hang out? Okay? How would you respond? And let me, let me sharpen that a little bit. What biblical argument would you make in reply? Because you might have something you'd say, it's just wrong. But if you just tell them it's wrong without pointing them to God's revelation, what are your kids going to start assuming about you? You're just discriminatory, prejudiced. You're just, uh, you're, you are fill-in-the-blank phobic, right? If you don't have an answer from God to give them, all right? So make it your goal to, to be able to answer why does God's design, in, where God's design in gender come, comes from, why it matters, where his design for one man, one biological man, need I say this now, one biological man, one biological woman in one relationship of marriage for a lifetime, where does this come from? And, and, and similarly, where, where does the argument that pornography is, is an example of fornication come from? You need to be able to give them Bible answers. Number 18, okay, also one of the most important points in all this. Preach the gospel. Encourage your children to respond with repentance and faith. Greg Gilbert's book, What is the Gospel?, which is on the back page of the resources, um, is an excellent resource for you to have this conversation with your kids I think, it's, I think it's called Truth 78 now. I did not write down the title. It just popped into my head. Uh, Truth 78 has an excellent resource for speaking to your children about the gospel and leading them to respond. Um, do not assume, do not assume that you, by force of your arguments, can change your child's heart or even control your child's behavior. Don't assume that anything you can do can change. This takes, takes us back to point one, to prayer. And, and you may face, parents, you may face a very difficult decision I've known parents who have. Do I, do I put on new restraints? Do I lock my children down so much that I am willing to harm my relationship with my child to keep them from destroying themselves? This is maybe the most difficult issue I can remember in, in pastoral counseling was parents grappling with this. So do you, do you lock them down or do you give them freedom to go their own way? This is another one I want to take a light touch on. Here's one rule of thumb. The, the more understanding of sin and the closer your children are to independence by age and their ability to live independently, the more they understand where you stand on Scripture and consciously reject it, I think at that point, especially when they're older and, and, and close to being able to live independently, then you, then you may be in the place to do what the father of the prodigal son did in the Gospel of Luke to give him what he's asking for and give him the freedom to destroy himself um, on, the, on the foundation of your child's understanding of, of, of what the law is and what your obligations to him or her are. Um, I remember, oh my, uh, almost, I would have been over 25 years ago now, close to 30, I was engaged to someone to whom I did not marry. And that relationship came to an end. 
and my parents told me, you know, we're, we're actually really glad this relationship came to an end. Um, we, didn't think it was a, we didn't think it was good for you. It would not have been a good marriage for you. And I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me? And their answer was, because you never would have listened to us. And that was true. So, preach the gospel to your children, trusting in the power of God to do what your words and your love and the best of your persuasion cannot. And not only preach the gospel to your kids, but also preach the gospel to yourself and believe that gospel yourself. I think I note Ephesians 2 there on your handouts. Ephesians 2 begins with these words, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Parents, believing parents, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, In those trespasses and sins, we all once lived, verse 3, in the passions of our flesh. Not some of us, all of us once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And here it is, were by nature children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. This is pretty universal. All of us, just like all of the world, were children of wrath carrying out the passions of our flesh, the desires of our bodies and minds. But, but God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So parents, you did not breathe life into the corpse that was you. God did by His grace. You will not breathe life into the corpse that is your unbelieving child. But God can. Preach that gospel to yourself and believe it. You were not more savable. It did not require less omnipotence from God to save you than it will require from God to save your child. And so plead with Him to demonstrate the richness of his mercy towards your child. Number 20, believe that the power of the gospel and God's Holy Spirit can set your child free. Okay, again, I've been in 1 Corinthians 6 recently, so this weighs heavily on my mind. I think I've got 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 on your notes. Uh, I'm not giving you the whole context. Verse 9, 9 says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay, a grave declaration. Those who are in rebellion are outside the kingdom. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy. Okay, it's not just the sins that are big on our list. Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is not a comprehensive list. There are other lists in the New Testament that go into other, other sins as well. But I want you to just let verse 11 sit on you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul writes to this church in Corinth that in so many ways is a mess. It's a disaster. There's open sexual sin that the church tolerates, that they're proud that they're tolerating. There are lawsuits between church members. Church members are seeing prostitutes. There is socioeconomic division with the church, within the church where we see later where it's the, it's the day where they're celebrating the Lord's Supper and the rich people are coming early and feasting and getting drunk and not sharing what they have with their, with their poor uh, brother and sister church members. But Paul writes to this church that is a mess and says that what you once were, you are not anymore. This is also an important uh, 
uh, passage relating to questions about identity and how we identify ourselves and what sins uh, and, and, the, and the instinct that many people have to identify ourselves in relationship to a particular sin pattern, the Scripture here teaches the opposite. You are not anymore. If you've been redeemed, if you're in Christ, you are not anymore what you once were. And so, parent, not, not, and so on top of all that, parents, what your children are now, particularly in an unregenerate state, is not necessarily what they will always be. Because God and God alone has the power to wash, to sanctify, and to justify in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit of our God. This is our hope, parents. Number 21, help your child see that his or her body is designed for something better than sexual pleasure. Okay, so sometimes we say don't, 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 don't. And the don'ts are not wrong, okay? But sometimes we fail to affirm a positive vision of what God has designed us for. So in 1 Corinthians 6, we read in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Let's give it down to verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, that may not be immediately persuasive to your 16-year-old who is engaged in sexual sin. Your 16-year-old who's engaged in sexual sin will, will probably be uh, drawn more towards the immediate short-term pleasure of that sexual sin than toward this vision of your body as a temple for God. But help your children understand from, from before the time when they're born, okay? Maybe talk to them now, all right? But from, from the time that they're able to begin understanding, speak to your children and paint for them a picture that God has designed them for something better than, than short-term pleasure. God has designed them for eternal worship. That the God of all creation, the God who made it all, the God who designed it all, that God wants to dwell within your child so that they might be a part of God's cosmic purposes to display His glory and His worship throughout the whole earth. I mean, going all the way back to Genesis 1, throughout the Old Testament, into Matthew 28, the Great Commission, and, and, and all the way to the end of Revelation, God's design is to radiate His glory throughout all of His creation. And our bodies, as His temples, as His image bearers, are a part of that design. Number 22, help your child see that you live like you believe that. Like you live, like you believe that your body is a temple for God, that your body is an instrument for worship. Do you? Do, you, do your children see that their parents are devoted to commit their bodies as houses of worship for, for the Lord? Number 23, establish some boundaries. I'm not going to say much about this. I know that Caleb and Claire are addressing it in much more detail. Some of the things I plan to say here, they've already said. Did you all talk about the average age of first exposure to pornography? Okay, I'll just shut up about that part then. Um, I will say this. If your kids attend a school, not just a public school, assume that that average age of first exposure applies to you. Okay, if your kids are around other kids who have access to phones or TVs or or, or other devices. Assume, don't, do not assume that because your kids don't have phones or devices that they're not exposed to it. 
if your kids are homeschooled, and I'm not making an argument for homeschooling in this conversation, if you homeschool your kids, you may be able to assume that you have a little more time. Now remember, whatever the average age is, 11, you say 11? Is that what you're going to go with? Okay. For every, for every child that's, that's 14 at their first exposure to pornography, do the math, that means that there's one child who's eight, right? And do not assume, well, no, let me put it this way. If you homeschool your kids, assume that your children's hearts are every bit as susceptible to temptation as children who are not homeschooled. Number 24, do not hope in the boundaries that you set up. Establish the boundaries, yes, but boundaries don't change hearts. Ted Tripp's book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, I think will be helpful here, here in helping us understand that our job is not to control behavior, set up boundaries, and then boom, everything's going to come out okay. You know, like, like your family is not a, 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 a greenhouse, okay, where if you can just get, if you can just keep your children safe from weeds and bad weather, everything's going to turn out okay. It's not, there's not, no biblical recipe that guarantees the outcome you want in parenting. In parenting. Boundaries didn't keep the Pharisees from sinning. Boundaries don't change hearts. In fact, we could make the argument from Scripture that laws stir up more transgressions and multiply sin. Boundaries do not prevent sin. They may delay it. Boundaries may merely mask sin, make it less likely that you're going to find out about it. Boundaries may make you think you are more safe as a parent than you really are. Number 25, if someone else is involved in your child's sexual sin, Consider what you should share with parents or other authority figures. Okay, what would you want to know as a parent if the situation were reversed? All kinds of complexities on this. I'm not here to give blanket rules, but I want to ask you to think about these things. Consider that you may be a mandatory reporter if the sin is also a crime, in particular if it involves a minor. And be alert to the possibility. This goes back to earlier on where you may, everything may not be as clear as it seems early on. Be aware of the possibility that your child's participation may have been coerced or at least influenced in whole or part. Coercion may be physical force, but it also may take the form of threats or emotional manipulation. Okay, if you don't do this, the person with power says, if you don't do this, then I will make life more painful for you. So be alert to the possibility that your child may not have been as willing a participant as you initially think that he or she was. Number 26, do talk to other parents with your child, who, who have children, uh, your children's age and older. So those of you who are in this room who have younger children or don't have children yet, start talking now to parents who've been through the battles and have more experience. Start now, swallow your pride, don't assume that you have all the answers. And if you are experiencing, uh, uh, if, if you are parenting a child who's in the midst of sexual sin, admit that you need help on this. It will not get better by you hiding what your family's dealing with, just like your child's sin won't get better if he's successful in hiding it. And then number 27, we come back to where we started. Pray. Pray before it happens. Pray when it happens. Invite others to pray with you. We have seen God do. God perform transformations in individuals' hearts in our church who were involved in serious sin after they asked others to pray. I told you a little bit about my own story earlier on where I was in a relationship that, would, that my parents believed would not have ended to, uh, taken me to a good marriage. I said, why didn't you tell me? I said, they said, because you wouldn't have listened. 
my mom's next words were, we just prayed for you. And by God's grace, God answered that prayer. Friends, I think that is it for, I'm going to stop there. I had a couple more things to say, but I think Caleb and Claire, Claire will cover it. Do you want to take a question or two? Do you have time? What do you want to do? I think we have time for one. Okay. Any questions?